Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. Back in March 2020, when COVID-19 burst into the global consciousness, the conversation quickly turned to a vaccine and whether we would ever get one. My guest today was at the forefront of that work, tirelessly developing the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. It has been administered to hundreds of millions of people around the world, saving lives and preventing serious illness. She's also written a book about the race to the vaccine with her co-author and vaccine co-creator, Dr Catherine Green, titled Vaxes, and I would recommend it to you. Dame Sarah Gilbert, Professor of Vaccinology at Oxford University, welcome to a podcast of one's own. Thank you. Sarah, firstly, I want to say a personal thank you to you. I received your AstraZeneca vaccine and I took to saying when people asked me about the side effects that they were joy and gratitude because (laughs) I was absolutely so, so grateful to get the vaccine. Now, how does it feel to have been at the forefront of developing something that has made such a difference to the world? Can you feel the weight of it or does it just seem so absurdly huge that it's hard to imagine? Well, it's something that with the team, we don't really think about too much. We're still really very, very busy. We've all had an incredibly busy 20 months. There's still work that we're doing that we need to concentrate on. And obviously, we're really pleased that the vaccine that we started developing in January of 2020 has had such a big impact. That's always been our aim as researchers to be able to do that. But mainly, we're still focused on what we still have to do. Well, and we'll definitely talk about what you're doing now. But before we get there, for all of the lay people listening, and I'm going to put myself in that category, given my last study of science was in high school, what is the difference between vaccine effectiveness and vaccine efficacy? Can you explain what makes a good vaccine? So, Vaccine efficacy is what we measure in clinical trials, where we vaccinate people that we've recruited into the trials, and they are given either the vaccine we want to test or an alternative. It might be a placebo or it might be a different vaccine that's not expected to work against this particular disease, and and both were used in COVID vaccine trials. And the person who's being vaccinated doesn't know which vaccine they've had, so they don't know if they're likely to be protected or not. And then they go about their normal existence without being required to change anything. And some of them will become infected 
due to exposure to the virus. And when enough people have been infected to have sufficiently large numbers to do a statistical analysis, then after a lot of checking of the data to make sure that everybody who was thought to be infected really was infected and fulfilled all the criteria, then the statisticians will look at the data and see of those who got infected, did they have the COVID vaccine or did they have the other vaccine or placebo? And that tells us the vaccine efficacy. So we've been seeing various different levels of efficacy reported. The WHO originally wanted to see vaccine efficacy of above 50%. And all of the vaccines that have reported efficacy in trials have been above that level. Then when we start using the vaccine in the population in general, public health bodies will do monitoring of how well the vaccine is working. And so that's what gives us the effectiveness data. That's what's happening in real life outside of clinical trials. And effectiveness data tends to be a little bit lower than efficacy data, just the way things normally work out. And also it's subject to change over time because of different features. With COVID, we've seen the impact of different variants. So we've seen effectiveness has declined a little bit, but not to a very large extent. So the efficacy is what we measure in clinical trials, and we have to present that data to regulators to ask for permission to start using the vaccine. So it's very important, but it's absolutely not the last word on how well the vaccine works, because for that, we need to see the real life effectiveness data, and we need to see if there's anything that's making that change over time. For example, if there was a vaccine that had only a very short-lived effect, we would see that in the effectiveness data. And looking at your vaccine, when the effectiveness data started coming in, were you pleased? Was it better than you expected? We were absolutely delighted when the effectiveness data started to come in because the first data was from people over the age of 80 years in the UK. That was the first group to be vaccinated. And that's a group that's typically hard to protect. As we get older, our immune systems don't work so well. And to so really high effectiveness data, keeping people over the age of 80 out of hospital, even after a single vaccination, was fantastic. That would have been incredibly pleasing. Now, in the book, you describe the high-pressure environment you worked in to create the vaccine so quickly. You said what can normally be a 10-year-plus process was condensed into a year. What does that mean the last couple of years have been like for you? Can you give us a sense of what your days have been like? They've been very long days for the whole team. The way we were able to condense this work was by overlapping parts of the process that would normally run sequentially. And we knew from the very beginning that we would need to do that to get the result as quickly as possible. So from the very beginning, while we were planning the early part of the work, we were also planning the next phase and the phase that would come after that and then thinking to beyond that, looking at trials in different countries and so on. So That means there's a lot more to do than there normally would be in a vaccine development program. Normally, we only have the funds to do a bit of the work and we do that and we review everything and we present the data and then we think about moving on to the next stage. Overlapping everything was the only way to get things moving as quickly as possible. So our focus was on working out how much do we need to know before we can apply to go on to the next stage and getting there as quickly as we could. And so we're talking seven days a week, early mornings, late nights? Yeah, I I typically started about four o'clock in the morning because I would wake up with thoughts in my head, something would have become clear to me. And 
I'd then think of something else and then a third thing and then realise I just have to get to my computer and start working on this before I'd forgotten all of it. So I tend to start very early. Other colleagues worked very late in the evening. So between us, we were pretty much working around the clock. There wasn't much of a gap between my colleagues finishing and me starting. And yes, definitely seven days a week. I still look forward to weekends because not everybody else was working at the weekend. So it gave me a chance to catch up on some of the other things that I hadn't managed to get done during the week. But all of us worked every day for a very long period of time trying to get everything covered. I think many people, when they think about a scientist or someone making a vaccine like you, the mental image is, you know, in a lab, in a white coat, microscope, test tube. We probably got that image of the scientist working alone. But in your last few answers, and certainly in the book, you talk about the team. What does it take? What does the team look like? You know, how many people are involved, what sorts of occupations need to come together to get something like this done? Well, on our first publication of clinical trial results for the COVID vaccine, we had 230 authors from the Oxford team. So that gives you an idea of how many people we had here working together. So we need people who are leading on different aspects of the work. There's the early production of the vaccine, which my team in the Jenner Institute take on, the construction of the putting together the pieces of DNA that are going to eventually make the vaccine seed stock that's used to make all of the doses of vaccine. We have the lab testing that we have to do to make sure that everything looks correct with the vaccine. Then we have a vaccine manufacturing team. We have an authorised vaccine manufacturing facility on our campus, MHRA authorised, so it's allowed to make vaccines which then go into clinical trials. And that's a group of very specialised experts who work in the vaccine manufacturing. It has to be produced and tested and shown that it's exactly what it should be. We also collaborated with people in the US at the National Institute of Health to test the vaccine in preclinical studies to show that when monkeys were immunised with the vaccine and then deliberately exposed to the coronavirus, they um, didn't get infections in their lungs in particular and that the vaccine was not causing what has occasionally been seen, which is an odd phenomenon where animals who've been vaccinated sometimes have worse disease after they're exposed to the virus. We didn't expect that to happen in this case, but we had to do the experiment to prove that it didn't happen. And so that was also done. And we had the results from that before we started our clinical trials. We have another team who work on the clinical trials applications, putting together all the paperwork for the regulator and the ethical body to allow us to apply for permission to do the clinical trials. And then we have another team of people who actually run the clinical trials, people who talk to the volunteers, people who work in the clinic, nurses and doctors who give the injections and then take blood samples and so on. And we have a team of immunologists who then receive the blood samples and look at the immune responses in the blood. Now, on this occasion, you had the resources you needed to stand up a team that size and to get on with it urgently. But normally, that's not how science works. Your work relies heavily on grant funding. And you've spoken in the past about the temporary nature of that sort of funding and the level of unpredictability that it creates and the difficulties of having the security you need to balance work and family life. In fact, you've said, I got my PhD when I was 24 and I didn't have a permanent job until I was 58. Can you explain to those of us who are not in science the pressures that that brings and what we could be doing differently? 
So you said that this time we had the funding in place. Actually, we didn't. We were working without the funding being in place for the first few months. It wasn't until late April, actually, after the clinical trials have started, that we really did have assured funding. So it was a very stressful time for us. We were getting small amounts of money, but even by the time that money was awarded, we'd actually already spent it. And we were looking for 10 times more money because the pace of the work was moving so quickly as it had to. So we took a lot of risks. We really believed we could produce a vaccine and that the money would come eventually. But we had to get on with the work in the absence of funding initially. And that was a very difficult time for us. Normally, we have to write a grant application and send it to a funding body to review it. It can take anything from six months to a year to get an answer. Sometimes it's reviewed by people who haven't quite got the point of what it was we were trying to to do. And that can be a year's work with a, a negative answer at the end. The success rate for funding applications is somewhere between 15 and 50 percent. So there's never any guarantee we're going to get work funded, even when it's a really great idea from a fantastic team. And this means that we can't retain staff because we're not allowed to pay staff when we don't have the money and there's no other source of funding for them. So it's really very difficult to keep an expert team together. And in fact, I'm about to lose some of my team who are now going to go off for more secure jobs elsewhere. Wow. So a lot to think about after this. Well, we're still in it, but in this uh, global crisis about what we can do for science funding in the future. And as you know, one of the things I do is I chair the Wellcome Trust, which is a major funder of science. Now, the AstraZeneca vaccine is being used broadly here in the UK and in many other parts of the world, but some parts of the world limited its usage. That's been true in my home country of Australia. How did you feel when you saw those sorts of decisions being made to limit access to the AstraZeneca vaccine to particular age cohort, for example? The reason for limiting the use to certain age groups was that after vaccination had happened in tens of millions of people, we became aware of a very rare adverse event after vaccination, which was the formation of blood clots. This was very, very rare. If seen at all, it happened at the first vaccination. It wasn't being seen at the second vaccination. And as more data came in, it became clearer that it was more common in younger people and not older people. Initially, there were some reports from Germany that it was more common in women and men, but that turns out not to be true. But it is true that it's more common in younger people than older people. Now, this is something that we didn't observe in the clinical trials where we had tens of thousands of people recruited because it's too rare to pick it up. So it wasn't going to be possible to see it until the vaccine had been used in tens of millions of people. And so it was right at that point to restrict use of the vaccine to the older people where this was less of a risk. And we've continued to to gather information on, first of all, how to manage that syndrome if it does arise. And the haematologists have done a lot of very good work on, on that. And we are continuing to look at why this happens, which is it's going to be something that will take us a while to understand fully, because with it being so rare, it's actually very difficult to study. But clearly, we want the vaccine to benefit people. The risk-benefit analysis is very clear that actually you're much more at risk of getting blood clots if you have a COVID infection than if you have the vaccine. But the risks are much lower in older people and the the risks from COVID are much greater in older people. And so it made sense to use this vaccine in older people. 
And what's the definition of older in your view? I fear that you're going to put me in that older category, but feel free. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, slightly different decisions have been made in different countries, and that's that's down to the risk-benefit analysis in that country, and also thinking about what other vaccines available and how much disease is circulating at the time. So it's a complex decision to make. In some countries, over 40 would be that category, but that's, that's not universal. We've also been seeing that the risk of this rare side event is not the same in different countries, in different parts of the world. That's something that we're beginning to understand more. And that may mean that the recommendations are different in different parts of the world. It's incredibly interesting, isn't it? And something that I think it's quite hard for the public to understand the weighing up of all of the risk and benefits, you know, the benefit of getting the vaccine, the protection from COVID, including, as you say, the fact that COVID can have an association with blood clots. It's not like it's only the vaccine. So incredibly interesting and something that I think requires consistent explanation. Certainly, you've well and truly put me in the older category by saying (laughs) 40, no doubt about that. Now, you were quoted in a Financial Times article saying, obviously it was an article from last year, this is 2020. Why are we even discussing women scientists? I'm not a woman scientist. I'm a scientist. And more than half of my colleagues are women and we do the job. How frustrating do you find it to be referred to as a woman scientist, as if that was some weirdly unusual thing? I'm hoping we've moved on from that and that people have just started seeing the people who work on vaccines as scientists without worrying about whether they're male or female, because that that really doesn't matter. What matters is the job that we're doing. And it's not something that occurs to me to think about very much because so many of my team are female and We have male members of the team as well, and we all work very well together. So it seems to be going backwards to be putting this focus on whether somebody is male or female. Having said that, there is obviously a lot of a dialogue about the fact that at various levels, women, girls uh, select away from what's called STEM, from the science, technology, engineering, maths fields of study. And that then shows in who's in our scientific workforce, our technology workforce at the forefront of creating new knowledge. Why do you think that is? Why do you think women and girls may shy away from going into that area and perhaps disproportionately streaming towards more humanities, social sciences style study? Well, again, that's not something that I'm familiar with because in life sciences, women are extremely well represented. It's other aspects of some subjects which I don't work in where there seems to be this issue. So again, I don't see the problem because around me, I see many female students as undergraduates and as graduates and as postdoctoral researchers. The only level at which there is a minority of women is in the very senior levels at the professorial level. And even that is beginning to change now as well in life sciences and in medicine. And where did it all start for you, the passion for science? How long ago was that? Was that in your school years? I was always interested in how things work, I think, and in particular how living things work. Biology was probably my favourite subject at school, and that led me to think that I would like to have a job working in the development of I was thinking more medicines, pharmaceuticals rather than vaccines, but that was always where I thought I would end up. 
And with that passion, you went and did your university studies at the University of East Anglia, and then you went on to the University of Hull for your doctoral studies. As you went through to ever more senior levels of study, did you notice any gender differences in terms of how many men and how many women were studying, or was it, because of the nature of the field, a pretty equitable experience? In biological sciences, it was pretty equitable. And so you didn't feel at any stage during those studies that you were being treated differently in any way? Well, it was a long time ago, but I do remember that I had many female co-students and it wasn't something that occurred to me that I had to be concerned about. As a result of the work that you've done on the AstraZeneca vaccine, you are now increasingly a public figure. And I'm sure that's got plenty of upsides, but some downsides as well. Amongst the wonderful upsides, I thought the image of you being applauded at Wimbledon, for anybody who's not familiar with that, please look it up. So obviously the grand tennis tournament here in London, you were watching it and it was announced that you were in the crowd and the crowd to a person just leapt to their feet to applaud you and to applaud the creation of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was a beautiful moment from a crowd that's there not to think about science but to watch um, balls being bashed with force over a net. How do you feel about that? And can you talk to us about how you've experienced the public exposure. You're obviously someone who likes to get on task and get the job done. Do you think it's an opportunity to talk about science and to encourage more people into science and the understanding of science? Or does sometimes it feel like a bit of a drag and it's taking you away from what you love the most? Well, I saw that standing ovation as the recognition of the public for all the work that's been done in not only creating the vaccine, but testing it and then a then rolling it out. So we had in the Royal Box with me, we had people from the NHS who've been instrumental in getting this vaccine to people. And and we have to remember that having a vaccine in a fridge or a freezer doesn't really achieve anything. We've actually got to get it into people's arms and get them protected. So I saw that um, ovation as, as recognition of the whole effort for everything that we'd all done together, because that was then starting to give us our way out of the pandemic. And there's still some way to go. But vaccines are absolutely key in protecting people so that we can start to see a path back to life as normal. And science obviously has been a a huge part of that. So I think in schools, there's been a lot of interest in what we've done. And lots of people are now seeing the point in studying science. It's, I think, encouraged students to to think about science as a career more, and that's, that's a really great thing. It is a really great thing. Now, what is next for you and your Oxford team? I mean, it's not like you make this vaccine and then you go on holidays for six months. <laughs> you are obviously uh, still working hard. What's the next frontier? What are the next insights that you and the Oxford team are working on? Well, we're trying to get back to research on vaccines that we were developing before the pandemic started. And these were 
vaccines that in a way set us up for being able to respond to the pandemic. One of them is another coronavirus, it's Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Another one is Lassa fever virus that infects people in West Africa, often children, and it leaves about 10% of the children who are infected with deafness, which is a lifelong effect of a childhood infection. And it's also very dangerous in pregnant women and to the healthcare workers who are then caring for the pregnant women. So we really need to develop against a vaccine against Lassa fever, and there isn't one at the moment. And another virus that I was working on developing a vaccine against is Nipah virus. This causes cases in Asia. It's carried in bats. Bats can contaminate food sources, and then people get infected, and it has an incredibly high fatality rate of about 50%. Fortunately, Nipah virus is not very transmissible between people. But as we've seen with coronavirus, if you give a virus an opportunity to practice transmitting between people, it gets better at it. It will mutate and the highly transmissible variants will be selected. And so the last thing that we want is a kind of a Delta variant of the Nipah virus, because for a virus with such a high fatality rate, that would be absolutely catastrophic. So again, we have the technology to make a vaccine. We just need to do the work. And that means we need to get the funding in place to do that work. So I'm now trying to get back to raising the funding to develop these other vaccines, all of which are still needed. And just on that raising the funding point, is it going to be easier now or is there still, unfortunately, a very hard-headed, indeed potentially hard-hearted analysis that says, you know, that the world responded to COVID-19 because everyone was at risk, including uh, the high-income parts of the world, whereas viruses that are seen to be confined to poorer parts of the world and not likely to cause a global risk, people are less interested in funding? Or do you think people increasingly get the point now that if you leave a virus out there, then it can jump, mutate and become a global problem? I think we still haven't got the message through well enough. There's still more work to be done because we are not developing these vaccines against viruses that we already know about. The problem is there is no market to sell these vaccines for the most part, but there's a real public health need for the vaccines. And if we don't have them and the viruses start to spread as the coronavirus in 2020 spread very rapidly around the world, then the whole world is at risk again. And we've seen the costs of a pandemic. We've seen what a pandemic can do to our lives and our livelihoods, people's jobs, people's incomes, absolutely devastated in some cases because of the effects of a virus that spread around the world. It takes a fraction of the cost of dealing with a pandemic to develop a vaccine and have it ready for use have it stockpiled, have it tested and ready to go such that if there is an outbreak, it can be controlled very quickly. Very wise and very powerful words. I'm going to come now to the last section of our discussion. I always ask each of my guests to respond to a fact. And the fact for you, I think, is going to build on that equity discussion we just had. And it is as follows. Worldwide, around 6.84 billion doses of COVID vaccine have been administered globally, and 48.5% of the world's population has received at least one dose of a vaccine. But just 3% of people in low-income countries have received even one dose of a COVID vaccine. How would you respond to that? We clearly need to do very much more to get the vaccine across the world. It's not right that the distribution should be so inequitable. 
because the vaccine had to be designed, created, manufactured from scratch, and we now need so many billions of doses, that was never going to be an easy thing to do. The real bottleneck at all stages has been in vaccine manufacturing, which is an area that's really neglected and still is really neglected. We see people talking about the different companies and the people who made the vaccines. We don't see people talking about the production facilities that got the vaccines ready to be used and the fact that these are not evenly distributed around the world. AstraZeneca, who partnered with Oxford, have done a superb job of working with many different manufacturing sites around the world, 25 different manufacturing sites, deliberately in many different countries, so that there can be local supply of the vaccines. But there hasn't been any manufacturing of the vaccine on the continent of Africa, because there are currently not suitable facilities there to do that. So what we need to do now is invest in getting those manufacturing facilities set up and ready to work for the future so that we don't ever find ourselves in this situation again. One of the questions I always ask my guests is, what's the worst misogyny they've ever had to face? That doesn't necessarily have to be in your professional life, but is there a moment you recall where you were definitely treated as lesser uh, simply because you're a woman? There's not something that I remember. As I say, I work in a team which is uh, actually more than half female and and that's been a situation for many many years so I I can't actually remember anything like that. That's a good answer too. (laughs) Uh, Now I also ask my guests if you imagine that for a moment or two you had all the power in the world and you would be able to change one thing, one thing for women, what would you change? I would like to remove the Kay Davis effect. Oh which I will need to explain to you. So Kay Davis is a very successful professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Oxford. She's a little bit older than I am. And she found that when the university decided it was necessary to have better representation of women on committees and selection panels, which is, of course, a very good thing, she was continually being asked to join many different committees and selection panels because she was the only person that anybody could think of who was female to fulfil this role. And that actually had a really negative impact on her ability to do her own research because so much of her time was being requested to do other things. Clearly, it's really important that we do have equal female representation in various different bodies, but it's not good enough to say, oh, well, there's only one woman we can think of in this organisation to join all of these committees. So if that is the situation, the answer, I think, is to start appointing much more junior female members to those committees to quickly get the gender balance more even, and also to provide some training and some experience to those more junior women who will then be better placed to take on the roles as they advance through their career. That is a great answer. And I can imagine many women listening to this podcast going, yes, that's my life experience too. And I'd like a bit of relief from it. So that's fabulous. Now, final question. Virginia Woolf says, My own brain is to me the most unaccountable of machinery, always buzzing, humming, soaring, roaring, diving, and then buried in mud. And why? What's this passion for? Sarah Gilbert says, I don't know how to respond to Virginia Woolf. I think she had a rather different take on life to me. I I think it's wonderful to be interested in science and it's wonderful to be able to work in what you're interested in and use that to do some good in the world. That's a great place for our conversation to end. A wonderful note for it to end. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on a podcast of one's own. Thank you very much. 
You've been listening to a podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. If you want to learn more about our work, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website and sign up to our updates. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and James Miller with Kings Online with editing by Nick Hilton. If you liked what you've been listening to, we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One Zone.